0: Order! Order! (laughs) So have you seen that? It's called Questions to the Prime Minister. And every Wednesday at noon in British Parliament, the Prime Minister comes to the House of Commons for 30 minutes of Q&A. And uh, thanks to television, a question to the Prime Minister has morphed into Britain's political version of gladiator. And you have to have a quick wit and a razor-sharp tongue to withstand the weekly grilling from the opposition party. Uh, The prime minister receives no questions ahead of time. Uh, He or she takes the podium with a notebook stuffed full of facts and figures which she thinks she'll be asked. And the element of surprise is intentional to try to knock the member of the opposite party off guard and each party is under tremendous pressure to get the better of their political opponent. And as you can tell, it's as much a battle of style as it is substance. And my imagination went wild watching that. I got to thinking, I wonder what kind of a forum that would look like in our government system. Can you imagine the president coming to Congress once a week talk about putting the fun back in dysfunctional Uh, that i don't know that may be too much of a good thing Uh, well you know what nutty thing are we gonna hear this week right part of me is going wow i don't think i could withstand that kind of grilling i mean call me a thin-skinned midwesterner uh if you will but um you know i watch that and it's like really what a waste of time and um this is democracy? This is democracy? And the answer is yes. Yes, that is democracy at work. Uh, and it's by far better than the alternative. You know what the alternative is, don't you? I mean, a, a vicious verbal duel in a government building occupied by business suits and armed with fountain pens is by far better than a battlefield occupied with Kevlar vests and uh, armed with assault rifles. So, that's democracy. That said, can you imagine that type of contentiousness taking place in a local church? Sadly, Some churches do function just in that way. As do families. And the dining room becomes parliament. And family members sit on opposite sides. And there's questioning and grilling and backbiting and devouring. And what's tolerated in government becomes toxic in a church and in family. And there is a difference. There is a difference. When it happens at home, nobody begins with the right honorable. And the question is always, why? What's fueling this? What causes fights And what causes quarrels among you? And that's the question which James gives us in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Please turn to your New Testaments to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. That's on page 1012 of your church Bibles. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, We're truly delighted that you're here. I'm Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And we're in a series on words, a series about our talk. And what we've learned so far is that from the pages of Genesis, God is the great speaker. God created speech. We speak because God has spoken. And God has purposed words to create life. And God has purposed words to create community. And God has purposed words that we might speak as his image bearers. We also learned that instead of listening to the great speaker, we heard from the great deceiver, the serpent. The fall came about because of words. And our world has been broken since. And there is not one place on earth that has escaped the brokenness and fallenness of sin. And James 4, 1 through 12 shows us that even in the secret places of the heart, the brokenness of sin has had its effect. These are challenging words. Let's hear from James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. This is God's Word. So think about your last quarrel. Who was it with? Was it a colleague? Was it a neighbor? Family member? Parent, brother, sister, son, daughter, your spouse, your former. When was it? Was it this past week? Was it yesterday? Did it happen last night? This morning? On the way to church? How did it occur? Was it in person? Was it over the phone? Was it on the way out the door to work at 7.45 a.m.? Don't tell me you texted it. What do you think caused it? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You know, James challenges me and pushes me. James says, You know, Randy, sometimes the issue that you think is the issue really isn't the issue. Sometimes, many times, we think that the cause of our quarrel is outside ourselves. The reason why the quarrel is taking place is the person on the other side of the aisle. And like Parliament, we stand up and we see who that opponent is. We know who the opposition is. We know whose fault it is. At least we think we do. If you're like me, you can probably think of a hurtful exchange that you've had with someone. But because of the speed of life, or maybe even personal pride, you chose to move on with your busy schedule and it went unresolved. But moving on became increasingly hard, didn't it? Because your mind started to be distracted by that conflict. And you began to stew over it. Their wrongs and your rights began to rent space in your mind. And you rehearse what you wish you would have said. I know I do. And my inner lawyer rises to my defense and decisively silences my opponent. And I win. Always I win. When I've replayed a disagreement that Sarah and I have had in my mind I've never ever lost (laughs) I'm undefeated and you know then what happens is the more I ruminate and the more I think about what I would have liked to have said the angrier I start to feel and the more annoyed I start to feel and then you know I start thinking of the other person in a different way And soon in my mind, I I start imagining this person to be this human axis of evil. And James 4 helps me see that, you know, unresolved relational breakdowns cause me to mentally stick my opponent on a rotisserie and just start slowly turning them. And after roasting them and grilling them, in the oven of my burning anger, this other person becomes a charred, grotesque, unrecognizable version of who they once were. And at that point, peacemaking is the farthest thing from my mind. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James gives me the answer that I really don't want to hear. Because James says, Randy, the answer is not that the other person is this axis of evil. The problem is not because they're a knucklehead. The problem is not because of hormones. The problem is not because the alcohol is doing the talking. The problem is not because of evolution's aggressive genes. The problem is not daddy issues. It's not because I woke up on the wrong side of bed. It's not because I didn't get to go to body pump or ride my bicycle outside. It's not due to a lack of vitamin D. It's not because of my boss, and it's not because I'm I'm Irish. That's not what causes fights and quarrels. James tells us exactly what causes fights and quarrels. Verse 1 Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Remember when Jesus said, the person who harbors hate in their heart toward another person, that's tantamount to murder. That's where James is coming from here. James is the brother of Jesus. You covet, you cannot obtain, you fight, you quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The issue that I think is the real issue really isn't the issue, James says. The real issue behind my fighting and my quarreling is the war machine in my heart the real issue is the bitterness in my heart the real issue is the selfish ambition in my heart the real issue has to do with my heart you desire and you don't have i mean the bible could not be more straightforward as to the origin of our interpersonal quarrels and fights we fight because we don't get what we want and that's that And some might find that just way too simplistic. Well, of course, people get mad when they don't get what they want. But what's underneath that? And according to James chapter 4, there is nothing else underneath that. When you get to the heart, that's the cause. And there's nothing deeper to your bitter resentment than the entrenched, self-centered desires of your heart. It takes two to tango. Now, why are you in the dance? Isn't it because what you desire is being frustrated? Your desires have morphed into ruling desires. And those ruling desires then become expectations. And expectations are premeditated resentments. And those premeditated resentments then lead to disappointment. And disappointment then leads to judgment. And judgment leads to a sentence of punishment. And James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and one judge. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you see? Do you see the real problem here? My ruling desires make me want to be like God. You will be like God. God! Oh, that's the tastiest temptation ever. I mean, it's one thing to be called Randall, but it's another thing to be called Lord Randall. Say that again Lord Randall. Lord Randall. Lord Randall. Mm. And you know what I've just done? I've just turned the Lord's prayer into a parody. See, The Lord Randall's prayer. My will be done. Mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory whenever you witness friendships and relationships and marriages and companies and churches and nations who are entrenched in fights and quarrels, it's because two petty gods are clashing for control. Our fights and our quarrels come from submitting to the desires of a different God. And someone might say, well, are you saying that, you know, I shouldn't have any desires at all? Nope. No, not at all. No, James does not say that it's wrong for us to desire. The desire for education is good. The desire for health and fitness, good. The desire for wholesome relationships, good. The desire to earn money to support your family is good. The desire to save for retirement is good. The desire to use your leadership gifts, To serve others is good. It's all good. But Satan always takes God's good gifts and he twists them in wicked ways. Listen, Satan has never had an original thought in his life. He is the ultimate plagiarist. He always takes God's good gifts and perverts them, and and so our good desires become twisted, cancerous, and then they multiply, don't they? And then they assert themselves to the point where they rule. Our twisted, uh, carcinogenic desires compete for the authority in our hearts that only God should have. And so the desire for success at work becomes a demand for appreciation from the boss. The desire for money, to pay bills, morphs into a lust for affluence. The desire to be a good parent gets twisted into rearing children who enhance my reputation. And when toxic desires take the heart hostage, then others become either vehicles that I use to take me to that desire, or they become obstacles that I must eliminate to get that desire. James tells us that godly desires become toxic desires when they're idolatrous desires. And do you know how to tell if your desire is godly or toxic? Do you know how to tell? By the words that's coming out of your mouth. That's how. What's coming out of your mouth? Jesus said as such in Luke chapter 6, verse 43. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. Then he says this. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Did you hear that? For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why'd water come out of this bottle?
1: Again, brother? That's
0: exactly right. The reason why water came out of this bottle is because water's in the bottle. So you've never spoken a word out of your mouth that didn't first exist in your heart. So when someone says, excuse me, I didn't mean to say that, they're not really being truthful. <laughs> right? You know what they should have said? They should have said, please forgive me for saying what I meant. <laughs> because according to Jesus, it would have never come out of your mouth if it wasn't first in. Your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so as long as hate is at home in your heart, you will never speak love from your mouth. Transformed words flow from a transformed heart. And of course we could talk about techniques and Verbal management skills. Yes, of course, but until we deal with the heart Your tongue doesn't talk for you Neither does your mind Neither does your addiction. It's your heart and whatever controls the heart will control the words We don't have word problems. We have heart problems. And if a toxic desire rules my heart, then there's only two ways I can respond to you. You either help me get what I want and I will enjoy you, or if you stand in my way, it's war. And if this isn't strong enough, James says in verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? He calls the entire congregation adulteresses. I've never done that. And I I couldn't. You know why? Because I'm sitting in the congregation. I'm hearing what James has to say. Now what's behind that though? When, When James calls the congregation adulteresses, what's he saying about who God is? Well, think about it. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, who are we? Sheep. When the Bible says that that God our heavenly Father is the Father of lights, what does that imply? It implies that in Christ we are children and we are heirs. When James calls the congregation adulteresses, who is he saying as to the identity of God? He's our husband. He's our husband. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. Have you ever loved someone and you've exposed your heart to that person and you made yourself vulnerable and in return they didn't love you back? And you feel that hurt. And you say, God, don't you know how this hurts? And God says, I know exactly how this hurts. James says that our selfish conflicts deceive us into thinking that it's about me and the other person. It's not. It's you and God. Your horizontal conflicts are evidence of a vertical fracture. You've broken faith with your betrothed. You're cheating on God. You become friends with the world. And that word friend, mind you, Uh, is a much stronger word in the first century than we consider it today. The ancients took that word to mean alliance and loyalty. We kind of think of it as casual acquaintances in our culture. No, no, no. What causes fights and quarrels, James says? You have chosen allegiance. You've made an alliance with the world, and the world is always against God. So now what? What? James says, don't you understand? Your husband wants you to come home. Your husband is waiting for you to come home. That's why verse 5 says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? You're never going to find someone who will love you as deeply as Jesus. Christianity is not a a weekly grilling from the king. Christianity is not questions from the high king. Christianity is not parliament. You know what Christianity is? Christianity is the Hermosa Inn in Paradise Valley. Phoenix, I'm telling you, it is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. There's a beautiful romantic patio and candlelit. And there's this mountainous scenery in the back, and then there's this lovely bedroom that has this fireplace in the corner, and it is just wonderful. And you know, it's when you know when you fall in love, you know, you start singing those love songs that contain these syrupy cosmic lyrics and when sarah and i were in college we sang one of those love songs valentine's day 1984 oh, man i had way more hair on my head ain't she something oh my we sang this love song together actually we weren't dating at the time we were dating other people and we sang this love song (laughs) yeah oh and so you know we so we sang this love song to one another we were dating other people yeah we were in a traveling group and um you know some things just aren't meant to be but we were meant to be we were meant to be so so we sang this uh, song from the musical uh, Xanadu, Olivia Newton-John. Suddenly, right, she walks in, and I'm suddenly a hero. I'm taking in, my hopes begin to rise. Suddenly, the wheels are in motion, and I, I, I I'm ready to sail any ocean. Yeah. When you're in love, you start babbling things like that. <laughs> I'm ready to sail in the ocean. No, I'm not. <laughs> Oceans make me sick. <laughs> Oceans make me take Dramamine. <laughs> but we can go to Phoenix. Let's go to Phoenix. I want to go to Phoenix. You know. This, this romantic longing is evidence of a deeper longing to connect with a love that no human can fill. Because the truth is, truth be told, in our hearts, we really do want someone who is ready to sail in the ocean for us. We want someone who is thrilled to see us. And the gospel is that God, the Son, Jesus Christ did that. He, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. He crossed the ocean for us. And He became a servant. And He put Himself on the spit. He was grilled on that Roman cross to the point of being unrecognizable. And He did this to free us from the bondage of our self-centered Fights and quarrels. I'm ready to sail any ocean. Only one person can say that Jesus Christ, who loves you more than those weak pretenders, these counterfeit suitors, these idols. And just as any faithful husband would jealously protect the sacred intimacy with his spouse, James says that God jealously longs for the spirit that he made to live in us. You are never going to find anyone who's going to love you as deeply as Jesus. And so James says, come home. Your husband wants you to come home. Spiritual adultery is not some first century trip to a pagan temple to offer a sacrifice to a a dead idol. Spiritual adultery is a factious, divisive, bitter mouth in service to a self-centered, idolatrous heart. James says to Christians, then and now, you fight because you flirt with a false lover while your husband is home. And your husband wants you to feel his love melt your heart. Please come home. That's what verses 7 and 10 are about. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Christianity sees obedience to God in romantic terms. My husband hates lying. He gets excited about truth, and I want the pleasure of my husband's smile. And then you run to those things. Love is the strongest appeal to obedience. And to the degree that you take that into your heart, then you receive the power to not sin with your mouth. He loves you. How can you give your heart to anyone else? He gives more grace, verse 6, than what? Than any of these pretenders. James is telling us let the love of Christ rule your heart and when the love of Christ rules and floods your heart why we'll know it by your talk. (laughs) When the love of Christ floods your heart we'll know it by your talk. Your, Your talk is the clearest indicator that you're at home with Christ. Because now you start speaking with more grace because you've received more grace. You, you, you become a peacemaker because the peace of Christ dwells in your heart. And peacemakers, James says in 3:18, who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Do you bring peace to whatever room you enter? what if as a congregation we exited this place and wherever we went we just sowed seeds of peace with us and then all of a sudden over time why there's this fruit this harvest of righteousness that's growing at, at home and 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 in the neighborhood and and in the classroom and and in our offices and and in the community and righteousness and people are going what's going on what this? What makes this community so different? And then people kind of figure out that, that maybe the, the the epicenter of this is this gathering that takes place at twenty five zero one West Windsor Road. Hmm. When the love of Christ floods your heart, we'll know it by your talk. So, what is in your heart? What's ruling your heart right now? That's the there it is. Am I the kind of person whose heart craves power and control and I want to win at all costs? Or, or am I content to speak truth in love? Am I willing to have my heart purified so that my speech will be purified? you see the connection between my relationships with people and my relationship with God? Do I realize that when my relationships with Christians... You know, those relationships are evidence of being in sync with God and what He's doing in this world. Is there someone you need to make peace with today? Someone that's coming to your mind today? Listen. We've been married almost 33 years. Sarah and I have. And I've been your pastor almost 28 years. That's a lot of sermons. And you know, don't you, that there are Sundays when it's time for me to assume my responsibilities behind the pulpit. And there my bride is. And we've been in conflict. And I still have responsibilities to do. Man, those are just. Those are hard Sundays. And it's hard because I feel hypocritical. And it's like the Holy Spirit gives me more grace because I feel bad and she feels bad and we can't resolve the conflict, you know. And the Holy Spirit says, well, you're a sinner. You need grace. And so here's what we've done in those moments, Okay. And by the way, this is not one of those moments, (laughs) right? It might be. I've shown that picture, but anyway, no. She knew that was going to be shown. But here's what we've done. You know, we've we we have made an appointment for a peace summit. That's what we've done, and it's usually Sunday evening. No more than an hour. I can't do more than an hour. It's too intense, you know? So we resolve the conflict then. We, we, so, so sometimes you have to set it in a parking lot, I guess. And it, it, see, here's, here's the deal, and don't, don't shortchange that. Don't minimize the importance of setting an appointment to schedule your peacemaking because you see, that we have both agreed that we need to set an appointment and that we have both agreed on a specific place and a specific time. See, that's, that's a step in the right direction, you see. And that's healthy and that's good. And maybe you need to do that with someone. And then I would ask you to do this when you first meet at your appointed time for your no more than 60 minute peacemaking session. If you will begin Um, with these four words, okay? If you begin with these four words, you'll get farther than if you don't. And here are the four words. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. That's what James means when he says, humble yourselves. I could be wrong. Now, Jesus wasn't. But he took it for us. So we can say, I could be wrong. Because he who wasn't ever wrong took it for us and he suffered to the point of death and he absorbed the worst that the world's evil system could give him and he rose from death to show his kingship over it. And now he is our resurrected husband who is the emperor on high over heaven and earth and he wants us to come home And when his love floods our heart, we'll talk like people from another home. Amen. Heavenly Father. Holy Spirit, humble our hearts, destroy our defenses. Fire our defense attorneys. Fire our prosecuting attorneys. Take us out of parliament and just put us in this place of true, deep, life-sacrificing romance, self-giving love. I thank you that we get to experience that so much here, Lord. I thank you for how you've grown our church family. I thank you, and I pray, Lord, that you would continue your work in us, that what the Apostle Paul said of the church at Philippi would be true of us, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus, our husband. Oh, God, flood our hearts. And may our talk show it. And God's people said, amen.